0: And the tour guide had us all practice. <sniffs> <sniffs> Very good, she said. Now you're ready. Once you slurp your tea, you put your cup down, and you turn it back around. Before you drink, you see, you're supposed to have turned Mount Fuji so it faces the tea master, so she can see the mountain while you're slurping your tea. Slurp, <sniffs> put it down, turn your cup back towards your body. Take, the clo- take your fingertip. Wipe the rim of the teacup where your lips touched. And sit still. Then when the tea master asks you, How did you like my tea? You need to be prepared to answer her. Because that's very important. She will want to hear you say, Keiko des Aragata. Everyone practice, so we all practice Keiko des. Which means good and tasty. Thank you. The tour guide said, You will say Keiko des even if you don't like the tea. It's very important. Keiko des even if the tea is bad. Does everyone understand? Yeah. We drank the tea. You saw what it looked like, this green, frothy cup of tea. To me, it sort of looked like freshly mowed spring grass, which been pureed in a blender. It's bright, bright green. And you put the first taste up to your lips, and you realize this is not Keiko des. But you drink it all and you slurp and you say, Keiko Des. It, it, it tastes like fresh spring grass. <laughs> it's herb tea, specialty. No matter what, just say, Keiko Des. Even if the tea is bad, say, it's good and tasty. It's a polite lie, a civil lie. We're familiar with those. We do these polite, civil lies all the time. In fact, when we got back to the tour bus, the young guide said to us, okay, how many of you really liked this tea out of 30 people? Two, said Keiko Des. 28 said, very bad. Hope we don't have to drink any more of that. But we are used to, and this is not a criticism of a culture that I don't understand nor intend to explain, because we have our own polite civil lies that we tell in our world, and we do it all the time. We are engaged in mendacity when we say keiko if the T is bad, but we say keiko des. That's called mendacity. I, I love this word, the art of lying. Did you know it had such a big title? An ancient Hebrew story says that the king sent two of his citizens out and said, I would like for you to find the greatest gift to humankind, one of you. And I would like the other one of you to find the most destructive gift, the most disastrous gift to humankind. And both servants returned, each of them with an answer, the human tongue. The greatest gift And the most disastrous gift, and two of our Ten Commandments, interestingly enough, are devoted to the tongue. Commandment number three we studied several weeks ago. You shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain, remember. Today, we're finally on commandment number nine, and we'll conclude this series next week. Today, from Exodus chapter 20, we read verse 2 and verse 16. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery... You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's a very specific instruction, and it would be very easy for a Hebrew citizen to understand when you're in a court of law, that's the context, you will be asked questions, and when you answer, answer truthfully. This is not keiko death. Don't say good and tasty. If it's not good and tasty, tell the truth, because... The outcome depends upon what you say. These court systems are very different probably than our world today. There's no lawyer, uh, judge, finesse movements, motions, fancy appeals. It's very simple. A crime is committed. If you witness it, you're commanded to go to court. And if you are the one that witnessed it, you'll probably be the one to prosecute the case as well. And if the person is condemned, you'll probably be the one to enact the punishment. If it's throwing stones, you'll cast the first stone if you witnessed this. The instructions are very clear. Go to court and tell the truth. And if you don't tell the truth, they're very specific about what will happen to you. And it's interesting in these these primitive cultures where there's so much bloodshed, where there's so much abuse, where there's so many activities we wouldn't tolerate, Lying, lying, not telling the truth, sort of at the top of the list of no nos in these primitive cultures. If you're caught lying in the court of law, several things could happen to you. You could get the same punishment as the person who's on trial. Very much like that ridiculous television show that's on right now, Eye for an Eye, the courtroom show. Have you seen that one? It's just a terrible show. Well, that this, that's really what could happen here. If this person is condemned to be stoned and you lied, you'd be content, condemned to be stoned also. But in the neighboring countries around Israel there, the same kinds of things were happened. You could be cast off of a cliff, thrown off of a rock if you're caught lying. You could have body parts cut off, your nose and your ears. Move around to the Mediterranean, the Roman world, the same kind of thing. These ancient cultures didn't tolerate lying. they very specific this commandment. If you're in a court of law, tell the truth because the verdict depends upon you telling the truth. That's why two witnesses are required. Don't take the word of just one witness. We want to see two in most cases, which helps us understand later in the New Testament when we're told if you have to reconcile with your brother or sister, take someone with you. That's based upon this Old Testament practice of needing more than one witness. The specifics are laid out in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. There's a lot of reading there if you want to know what happens if you lie and who can be a witness. By the way, ladies, none of you could be a witness in the nation of Israel. No women, no children, no one blind or lame, no one who's not mentally capable, anyone who's ignorant, anyone who's a sinner. You see, the list starts to become more and more narrow. But it's very clear. I think this commandment's very clear to an ancient Hebrew. When you're called into a court of law, speak the truth, and if you don't, look out. And then we move to our world. And we read the scriptures, and we see that not only did the Israelites speak falsely many times, but, but God ordained it. You can recall some examples probably of times when the children of Israel told a lie and it seemed to be blessed or condoned by God. Can you think of some like that? Rahab, she, she hid the spies, right? Samuel, when they're looking for a king, God tells Samuel to lie and be deceptive. The, the Hebrew midwives, and when they're in Egypt, the Pharaoh says, every, every Hebrew woman who's on the birthing school, stool, make sure you kill that baby if it's a boy. The Hebrew women don't do it and they're blessed by God. Scriptures are full of those examples. I would call those examples, however, the ethically challenging scenarios that, not what I want to talk about today. We have ethically challenging scenarios, all of us in our lives. Things that are on the edge, on the border, on the fringes. And some of you in your specialties, that's sort of where you live and dwell on the fringes. You have to be ready for ethically challenging scenarios. I'd rather we think about this commandment with the regular and the predictable and the normal and the within our gates kind of behavior. Not so much the ethically challenging scenario. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas had one great example of these ethically challenging He he said in his teachings, if someone walks in with a knife and they ask, which room is your son or daughter sleeping in, how will you answer? We don't need instruction in that, do we? Would you tell the truth? I wouldn't tell the truth. That's where the spirit of the law becomes so important to us. Not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law guides us in those unusual scenarios, the ones on the fringes. And we understand the spirit of the law is to preserve life. So what about the regular? What we experience most of the time within our gates. Is it possible when we live in a world where lying is the norm, for Christians to be masters of truth-telling. Should we even expect it to be possible? You probably think lying is the norm in the world you live in, yes? Do you expect to be told the truth by Madison Avenue? By Hollywood? Do you expect to be told the truth in your advertisements? Do you expect to be told the truth in service situations when someone's servicing your car? Really, You know, I took my car in this week, and I told Kirby before he took it in, we, all, all we need is an oil change, but I guarantee you they're going to tell us we need 10 other things. Yeah, we needed to spend about $2,600 for an oil change. You see, I, I don't believe them. Eventually, I'll probably need to do some of those repairs, but this week, Wednesday, I didn't need to spend $2,600. I'm already programmed to live in a world where people probably aren't going to tell me the truth, and so are you. It's acceptable. Someone has described Americans as gentle liars. I like that. Gentle liars. We just sort of slip into it easily. It spills out of our tongue, sort of unchecked. Statements made on partial facts or just little white lies. You know that phrase, little white lies. When Jimmy Carter was running for the presidency, again, second time in 1980, He was touring the country, and apparently he told people, Do not vote for me if you think I'm not honest. If you think I have lied to this country, this nation, don't vote for me. Now, apparently his mother, Miss Lillian, was traveling with him. And a rather aggressive reporter got a hold of her and said, Now come on, you know your son. He said, if you think I've lied, don't reelect me. As a mother, could you stand there and say to us, your son, Jimmy Carter, has never told a lie? And she told this rather aggressive reporter, well, I'm sure he's told a little white lie. And the reporter said, uh-huh, yes. Now, please tell us, define what is a white lie precisely, Miss Lillian. Tell me, what is a white lie? And she says back to the reporter, and I'm going to quote, Well, I'm not sure I can define it, but I can give you an example. Do you remember when you came in the door a few minutes ago and I told you how good you looked and how glad I was to see you? Gentle liars, sometimes with an attitude. Is that okay for her to speak that way? Can she say, honestly, yeah, that was a little white lie when you came in the room? We have in this country this continuum of gentle lying, the little lies, all the way over to this malicious intended slander for which you can be taken to the court of law. All the way from social circle politeness to the kind of lying that will send us to jail and condemn us in this world. So my question is, is it really possible in our world to be truth-tellers? I think I'd rather ask it this way. When did we, as the people of God, decide that untruth should go unchecked? When did we decide, as the people of God, that we shouldn't expect to hear the truth anymore? Now, not from the world, but maybe from each other, from in our own families, in our own circles, in our own church, in our own denomination, at the minimum, which is where the commandment begins, when did I decide it's okay if people lie? It's okay if I, somewhere on this continuum, occasionally fudge a little bit. Is that okay? Okay. And is there a way I could move more towards a lifestyle of honesty? Remember at the beginning of our Ten Commandments sermon series, we said the Ten Commandments only matter for people who intend on being in a relationship with God, right? We don't have to worry about enforcing them on the world because it's very clear from their context. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, I have ten things to say to you that will change your life. And one of these ten things has to do with being truthful and being honest. So if the rest of the world is okay with unchecked truth, that's the rest of the world. But if I'm taking God seriously, if I'm going to be one of these commandment keepers, then I'm going to need to move towards, back towards a lifestyle of honesty. What's that going to look like? I think it helps us to understand why we lie. There's great research, neuroscience research, on the topic of lying, people who specialize in mendacity, the study of mendacity. Some from the University of South Carolina, some from UC San Francisco. Great information on what happens in the brain when we decide to lie. And the results are not neatly packaged, and and there isn't, as they would say, a holy grail of neuroscience research right now that would tell us why we lie and how to prevent it, but it, it helps me to understand human behavior, why I lie, what's happening inside of my brain. Can you understand? Can you remember the first, some of the first lies you ever told as a child? We're told children learn to lie about age three or four, that they experiment with their first lies. Can you remember any of those first lies you told? That is one of the questions on the insert in your bulletin to take home and think about. I can't remember my first ones. I'm sure I had a lot of them, like most little children. There isn't anyone here who can say we haven't lied because we we grow that way and we experiment with it as we watch the adults in our world. One of my favorite lies from the girls, and they both did this, and you'll have to tell me, do little boys do this too? Because both the girls did the the haircut with the scissors on the bangs. How many of you cut your hair when you were little? Let me see all of your hands. I want to see if there's any men. Because you have, okay, oh, thank you, at least one. I, th- I wondered if that was a little girl thing. Amanda did it on the day we were having portraits taken, family portraits, and she did it right in the front. It's a great picture. Alisa was a couple of years later, this one was precious to me because I went into my bathroom and in my bathroom I see these, these, you know, white locks of hair on the top of the trash can and it's not as, her hair is obviously much more blonde than mine. I thought, what is this hair? And I started digging in the trash can and there was quite a wad of hair, but as I went even further underneath the trash, I found the little purple handled scissors from which she cut her hair cut it off apparently and was so scared she threw it all the and pushed the scissors down deep inside the trash can. And of course, then I say to her, did you cut your hair? But if you turned her around carefully and looked in the back, my, there was a size of hair the size of my fist gone from the back of her hair we're told we lie for several reasons, and they don't really change from the time we're little till the time we're adults. We lie because we're embarrassed. We lie because we're uncomfortable. We're not sure how to get out of a situation we've gotten ourselves into. We lie because we, we don't want to be punished. We lie because we want a reward. We, want, we lie because we want to protect our privacy. We lie to win admiration. We lie to most significantly get power over people. When you lie, when I lie, if I pull it off, the only one who knows I pulled it off is me. And now I have power over. The reasons we lie don't really change as we get older. And by the way, we are the ones who teach our children how to do this. It's also interesting, these researchers say, lying is a choice It takes 800 milliseconds, 800 milliseconds to decide if you want to speak the truth or not. It takes more time to lie than to tell the truth because you have to process it. And with experience, we get better at lying. Memory is involved, but memory can be overridden with some practice. You can ignore your memory and not, not have it involved if you decide to lie. And there is not one little naughty spot in the brain which controls lying, and researchers wished there was. And guess who's the most interested in all of this right now? The American government. Because if we knew and could catch people who lied, we could prevent terrorism, right? We could prevent people from getting into our circles who could harm us. So the American government's investing a lot of research, research dollars right now into the neuroscience of lying, They call it the Pinocchio effect. And while our nose doesn't grow, we seem to touch our face and nose area when we're telling a lie. Did you know that? So go home at lunch today and have some conversation with your family. Ask a few questions and see who touches their face. (laughs) Or we get nervous with our gestures. We sweat more. We lick our lips. We lean forward. We stop using contractions like isn't, and we elongate our sentences. Lots of interesting research. It made us all a little paranoid in staff meeting this week as I shared, you know, what I'm learning about lying, and then we tried to have a two-hour-long meeting (laughs) watching people's eye gestures go up and down and watching them touch their face. Helps to understand why we lie. It helps also to decide if lying is a decision. It helps me to know I could decide I don't want to be in that camp. I could decide I'd I'd rather be a person of honesty. I'd rather be committed to the truth every time, everywhere. Are you willing to say that? Are you willing to take that risk? Because it is a little bit risky to decide we'd rather be committed to the truth. We'd rather be truth tellers. Do we really want to hear the truth is one question we ought to ask. If I say I want to be committed to the truth, that means when I ask you how you are and you really tell me how you are, I better have time to listen, huh? I better have time to know how to process and help you. I better know how to withhold my judgments when you really tell me what your problem is. I better know how to be the body of Christ to you if I really, really want you to be a truth teller and I want to be a truth teller. Are we sure we're ready for that? To be honest, it takes more energy in community, to be honest. Do we, are we ready for that? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Here's another question to ask. Well, along the lines of, do you really want to hear the truth? Sometimes we would just rather stay in the dark. You heard this account of the monk who's eating his dates, and the first one has a worm and he throws it out the window. And the second one, he takes a bite, and it also has a worm, and he throws it out the window, and he sees he has only a few dates left, so he just turns the light off and eats his dates in the dark. Because if he has to throw them all out, he'll go hungry. Being a community, and we've said this several times as a pastoral staff, being a community committed to honesty takes some work. Are we sure we want to be that kind of a community? Do we want to develop a voice for truth? Do we want to be with truth tellers? Psalms 28 says, I do not spend time with liars or go along with hypocrites. I hate the gatherings of those who do evil and I refuse to join in with the wicked. Wow, if I decide I want to be a truth-teller, I'm not going to keep company with liars and go along with hypocrites. I might have to break silence, which is another form of lying. To keep silent is a form of lying. Am I ready to do that? Am I ready for the consequences that would come if I decide not to be with liars or hypocrites, if I decide I don't want to be like that? It was amazing to... Look at this A bomb dome in Hiroshima two weeks ago and read the accounts of what happened over 60 years ago when the atomic bomb was dropped. In three weeks, in Hiroshima, the plaza there where the atomic bomb was dropped will be filled with residents and citizens of Japan where they will gather for a memorial. They remember what happened to them, but that's not all they do. This week when North Korea sent a missile up in the air, I am quite certain because this is the committed decision of the officials in the city of Hiroshima, every time someone tests a nuclear weapon, the mayor in Hiroshima writes a letter and says, Dear Sir, Dear So-and-So, Dear Madam, I'm writing to you on behalf of the residents of residents of Hiroshima to remind you of the effects of an atomic weapon. Please stop all testing. It's a commitment they've made as a city and as a government. We are going to tell the truth. We're not going to be silent about what this kind of a weapon does. Are, are Are we willing to be truth-tellers, to find our voice, to speak up like that, to not be silent, to let people know when danger is ahead, because to conceal that truth, that's a form of breaking the ninth commandment. It's risky, risky business. Finally, I'd like to say that when you talk and listen to researchers talk and therapists talk about lying, it seems clear that lies are for the here and now. We lie to get us out of a jam right now, something immediate that's happening. And we fail to take a long-term approach, a long view, a long vision of the consequences. Now, as Christians, we have long vision, don't we? We know about the here and now, but we also know about the later. We are working all the time on developing vision, both short and long vision. If I understand that lying, really at its core, will demolish relationships, then maybe that will make a difference on my choice to lie or to not. Because over and over again, if I choose to lie, what I will do is destroy trust. I'll destroy relationships. I'll teach people that I'm not safe. I'll teach the community they can't come to me. I'll teach the world, even, that God's people aren't any different than the rest of the world. Unless I get out of my immediate consequences and develop a long range on this topic, a long range vision, it will probably be difficult for me to choose to be a truth teller and a person of honesty all the time. Carelessness, silence, half-truths, exaggeration, innuendo, uncorrect truth, malicious intent, libel, little white lies, gentle lies. They all fall under the ninth commandment. As a commandment keeper, I hope it's getting clearer to you as we've moved now through this series, all ten of these commandments are nestled in relationship. And this commandment is no different than the others. Bearing false witness destroys relationship. And what right do I have to do that is what... The commandment says to me, What right do I have to take life? My right is to build life and to give life. At the core of this, destroying relationships. One lie I do remember when I was a little girl it is a couple of months till apple season in Washington state, but it's coming. And we not only pick apples, but we peel them and freeze them and get them ready for pies for all winter long when I was growing up. Everyone knows, you all know, the Gravenstein apple is the best pie apple, right? Never eat an apple pie that wasn't made from a Gravenstein apple. If you didn't hear anything else good in church today. One Friday afternoon, Friday night, mom made pies for the weekend, and I saw this pie sitting on the stove, and I'm not sure why everyone else was in bed and I was up, but the house was quiet. And it occurred to me that I could lift the crust of the pie up and scoop the apples out without having to cut the pie open and show that I'd been inside the pie. So I found a little side where the juices had spilled out. was kind of mushy, and I stuck my fingers in there and began to slurp the apples out of the pie. Now, this must be the four-, five-, six-year-old stage where you don't understand... What's going to happen if you scoop the contents out? Because by the time I got my fill of Gravenstein apples and I put the lid back down, the lid just sunk. And I stood back and realized I just ate the apple pie. And somebody's going to find out. And I went to bed, and I don't remember how all this came down, but I know that pie was for Sabbath lunch, and as all good mothers and parents do when you see what's happened, all four of us got called to the kitchen, and they rattle all the names off in a real quick hurry, and we all stand lined up, and the question is, who ate the apple pie? I've always been grateful for a brother who looks guilty, and I think I've told you that before. My, my younger brother, he's only eight months younger, but God bless him for looking guilty all the time. Who ate the apple pie? Mom's eyes go to my brother. Sometimes he was so good at being guilty, he would cover for us, but he shook his head no, and of course I'm found out, and I ate the apple pie, and I don't know what the punishment was. This is what I remember. When When you tell a lie, you destroy community. When you choose not to tell the truth, you've just ruptured the fabric of trust and confidence. You've just messed with something that was sacred, a relationship that you could count on. When I choose to cross over the line and do that, I become then a person in the family who also can't be trusted. I don't know what happened to the pie, but I remember that feeling of being on the outside of family. The Ten Commandments are all about helping us understand the most healthy, positive way of being inside the community. So when God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, don't bear false witness. It's because when I tell the truth and I'm honest, and when you tell the truth and when you're honest, this family has potential to be the sacred thing God planned. That's my prayer for us. May it be so. Amen.